0: What is the 10th commandment? The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet. Okay, that's the abbreviated version. Right? Here's the full text. This is from the Exodus version. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I guess just two things to point out about that. First of all, that there's a fairly high degree of specificity. Uh, Off the top of my head, it seems to me that the commandments, in general, are brief. They're to the point. They don't tend to list out particular ways that you might violate the covenant. But this one does. That may turn out to be interesting. Uh, But it's also all-encompassing, right? or anything that is your neighbor's. So anything that wasn't on that list, also that. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Question 332. What does it mean not to covet? I am not to let envy make me want what others have But in humility, should be content with what I have. Okay. So, what's the relationship between coveting and envy? That's not a rhetorical question. Envy produces coveting. Okay. Good. Say more. Good, envy is dissatisfaction with what I have, with my own situation, my own state of life, what God has given. Hmm. Coveting then is a kind of product of that. Envy would seem already to be directed toward a neighbor in some way, toward someone else, right? There's always already this comparison that's happening. Um, comparing ourselves to other people in general leads either to pride or to envy. Possibly both. <laughs> Strangely, it can lead to both at once. But you look at other people and you feel that twinge. Now, now wait a minute. How come she gets to... Uh, now why does he have whatever? Right. There's a, an old saying This goes back at least to Shakespeare, it's probably older. Comparisons are odious. Comparing ourselves with other people is usually spiritually bad news, okay? Envy becomes coveting when it starts to particularize in these specific ways. Setting my desire on someone else's specific possession, state of life, relationship, connections, status, whatever it might be. Right? I want that thing that she has. Well, how come he gets to be like, that? I want that. I deserve that. Or anyhow, he doesn't deserve it more than I do. There's this sort of twisted up sense of injustice. Yes. Uh, That somehow this isn't fair to me. Or at least we, we want to convince ourselves that that's it. So according to this... Answer, what is the alternative to coveting? Gratitude. Okay? Gratitude, yeah. Um, Contentment. I am not to let envy make me want what others have, but in humility should be content with what I have. This word humility is pretty important. right? This is already this comparing with others, evaluating myself in relationship with others. Humility says, maybe my claims to injustice are not as big and not as important as I thought. Humility says. Maybe my defining relationship is my relationship with God and that's how I evaluate myself and not by comparing myself with so-and-so But in humility practicing contentment then This means accepting that the gifts I've been given are not bad right? We live in a culture Of dissatisfaction or at least we live in a culture where very large and powerful corporations spend a tremendous amount of money to cultivate dissatisfaction in us because they want to sell us more stuff right I mean if you're satisfied with what you have you're not gonna buy more gizmos from us if you already like the old car you got how am I gonna sell you a new car I have to stir up this desire for something I don't have. This is how we keep the economy booming, guys. Built on discontentment, dissatisfaction. But the scripture says, and you have several scripture references in your text, I don't think you have uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, but maybe just write it there at the end. It should be on that list. Um, Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's this really interesting twist that the scripture's playing there that there is gain. There is benefit. There is a kind of accrual of spiritual wealth that comes from contentment and being satisfied with what you've been given. Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just so we're clear, what you have is God himself, right? This is what you're being called, what I'm being called to be content with is not a particular status it's not a particular set of possessions it's not this home i have instead of that fancier nicer one down the street it's not this old car versus ooh, shiny right it's god it is god with whom we are called to be content at least that's what hebrews seems to say And if we want to know what contentment looks like, Jesus gives us an example. This is the next question, 333. How did Jesus practice contentment? In contentment, Jesus took on the form of a servant without wealth or possessions, and in his earthly life loved and trusted his Father in all things. Our Lord was poor. he was poor from the get-go when his parents his earthly parents mom and adopted father take him to be presented forty days after his birth the sacrifice they offer is the two birds it's the poor person's sacrifice right which suggests they can't afford a lamb he will famously say, birds of the air have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He could have had, but he chooses this wandering life as an act of obedience and love to the Father because this is what he's called to do. I've been sent to all the lost sheep of the children of Israel. Not just here in Capernaum. There's a an old Rich Mullins song that I really like uh, called, You Did Not Have a Home. And the chorus quotes that verse from scripture. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. And it goes through, and, and the song really meditates on all these things Jesus didn't have that are on average, the things we think are the basic building blocks of a good life. And yet Jesus says, this is Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what clothes you're going to put on. For the Gentiles seek these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. This is the move that it makes, and this is what the answer here points out. Jesus took on the form of a servant without wealth or possessions. He empties himself, and in his earthly life loved and trusted his father in all things. The response to covetousness that Jesus makes is a response of trust in the father who is trustworthy. Right? That, that's his answer. Again, contentment is rooted in God himself. It's rooted in this relationship. And so Jesus is going to say, everything has been given to me by the Father. There's a kind of radical freedom that we see in Jesus, and that I think we see in the apostles as well and in many of the saints, that they, they aren't, in the way most of us are, possessed by their possessions. These things don't own them. Rich Mullins' song gets at this, too. Uh, He's going to say, essentially, so you had to get crucified because the world can't stand what it can't own, and it can't own you because you did not have a home. Jesus has a kind of freedom and a kind of detachment that means they can't own him. There's not a lot they can do to this man other than crucify him. Well, it turns out even then. That didn't quite work either, did it? There's this radical freedom that the scriptures that Jesus himself wants to offer us and is calling us into. And in calling us to repentance and freedom from covetousness, as we look to Jesus and see how he lives out that freedom of covetousness and that trust in the father. I want to suggest God in this commandment is trying to liberate us. Remember the 10 commandments are given after the people leave slavery in Egypt, after they've been delivered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The 10 commandments and the whole law is their invitation. God essentially training them how to live the life of people who are not slaves the people who belong to God. And that continues to be true in this commandment. Don't be slaves to these earthly things by setting your desires on them, being so caught up and wrapped up in that this is where I find meaning, this is where I find hope, this is where I find identity. No, get, get set free from that. How? Trust and contentment in the Father, that's how. Question 334. How is covetousness especially dangerous? Covetousness begins with discontent in mind and spirit. And as it grows in the heart, it can lead to sins such as idolatry, adultery, and theft, which you may recall have just recently occurred on this list of thou shalt nots, right? This is really interesting in the Sermon on the Mount early on in Matthew chapter five, the first part of the sermon, Jesus is gonna have this series of, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? You have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even hate your brother in your heart. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not commit lust in your heart, right? This move from outward enacted sin to the inner intention and desire, an act of the will that sets itself upon the sin. But what's really interesting is that that's not new to Jesus. The Ten Commandments actually does that, but it doesn't do it till here at the end, at least not really clearly. Coveting is not an external action. right? Coveting is an act of the heart. You might be coveting, and I might not know. If you kill me, I'm going to notice, or someone will. <laughs> I'm like, hey, that was my death that just happened, right? You you steal my stuff, I'm going to be like, hey, my stuff is gone. You covet my stuff, I might not know that. But the Ten Commandments are already concerned with the way that sin not just affects our outward actions, our relationships, our community. But how they're shaping our souls, how they're forming us as persons, how they're separating us from God and causing us to turn away from that relationship of loving trust. Jesus picks that up and extends it and carries out the logic of it in the Sermon on the Mount. But on this earlier mount, on Mount Sinai, God is already showing Moses know that this is a heart problem and not just an action problem. And so, question 335, again, is helping us start to think through what are the alternatives. What should you do instead of coveting? I should think often of the inheritance that Jesus has prepared for me. Meditate upon his care for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Be generous with what God has entrusted to me and help others to keep what is rightfully theirs. So what are the cures for covetousness? Thankfulness, gratitude. Right. James, you mentioned this already. Trust, generosity. I think it's really interesting that this answer starts with meditating and being aware of the inheritance that Jesus has promised. Because this is one of those things about the New Testament that I never know quite what to do with. It, it doesn't seem appropriately spiritual sometimes jesus and and the apostles actually in the epistles it's like they're appealing very straightforwardly to our desires for gain jesus says whoever gives up house wives children lands these things will receive them many in the kingdom you're like well wait a minute Aren't I supposed to be, like, giving up those things and relinquishing those desires? Well, yes, sort of. But Jesus seems pretty comfortable appealing to those desires and saying, no, you have desires. Desires aren't bad. But they need to be reoriented and directed toward God. Right? You read, well, in the the new lectionary, this last couple of weeks, we were reading 1 Peter. First chapter of 1 Peter, it's all this stuff about this inheritance that is prepared for you, that's waiting for you, that's promised to you that the Holy Spirit is a seal and a foretaste stuff to make sure you know you're going to get it. God is troublingly comfortable appealing to these things that seem like base desires. I don't quite know what to do with that, but there it is. We have an inheritance, right? There's a kingdom that's promised to us. We ought to meditate on that. And there's a thankfulness that flows from that. There are good things that God is giving us. Not just that are promised, but that are offered us as a foretaste now. Right? This practice of gratitude. And then being generous. Because if the sin I'm prone to and that I'm struggling with is this possessiveness, this wanting what someone else has, one really good way to nail that to the cross is to give someone else what I have or to share what I have with others, right? The general principle for resisting sin. Thankfulness, trust, generosity... And joy, which you'll, you can hear emerging through yonder door. This is Hebrews again. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's not loss for the sake of loss. It's loss for the sake of gain. Right? It's sorrow that leads to joy. Jesus himself has a desire. Loving and obeying the Father, but also winning us, gaining us, gaining a people for himself, gaining a bride that carries him through the suffering and the work of the cross and the loss that he endures and the agony that he faces. It's this desire that is going to be fulfilled. This joy that is going to be attained that carries him through. And that's true for us as well. The letter to the Hebrews is saying the catechism is saying everything belongs to God and therefore if we are God's then we share it. We don't have a claim on it. It isn't ours. It's his. But he's mighty generous this is this is in a way the movement of the the last paragraph of the Eucharistic prayer right although we are unworthy because of our many sins to offer you any sacrifice yet we ask you to receive this not not weighing our merits but pardoning our offenses through Jesus Christ our Lord We don't come with a claim to deserve what's happening here, what's being offered to us. That's not how this works. If you're going to insist on fairness and justice for me, that's not going to work out for you in the long run. But if you're willing to be what C.S. Lewis calls jolly beggars, right, saying, wow, I don't deserve anything, so I'm just going to go ask for it and be like, I don't deserve this, may I have it, please? And God says, Yes, that's what I was like, lo- yes, correct. Right? This is how it works. This, and that's, that's what's happening in that, those last lines of the Eucharistic prayer. You're like, wow, I really don't deserve this. Can I have it anyway? And God says, that was the plan. That's, that's where we're going. This is the response to covetousness. It's to embrace the freedom of not Insisting on our claims of saying, what claims do you have? What claim do you have to Jesus dying for you? What claim do you have to resurrection? What claim do you have to grace? You don't, that's why it's grace. This is the economy of the kingdom. And it's only when we let go of this kind of insistence on fairness for me that we can have something a lot more abundant than I have a claim to a generosity that radically surpasses that. A freedom that isn't, that isn't tight-fisted hanging on to what I've got, or what you've got that I want. This next bit is really good, but any questions about that before we continue? Thoughts, observations? Okay, this background music is actually super appropriate. (laughs) As we move into need for atonement, healing, and joy, okay. 336, is it possible for you to keep all these commandments? No, I fail to fulfill them perfectly, however hard I try. One purpose of the law is to show me my utter inability to obey God flawlessly. And so to point to my need to Christ's Christ's obedience and atoning death on my behalf. Okay, I already started pre-gaming that with the Eucharist stuff. If we were only talking about external actions, maybe I could keep all the commandments. I mean, the Apostle Paul, before he encountered Jesus, was pretty sure he was doing, yeah, like he kept the commandments. Like I, I do that. I do those things. Or the rich young man Jesus meets and he lists out it's like, how how do I enter the kingdom? Well, you know the commandments he lists I've I've done all those things. What else do I do? And Jesus pegs his covetousness of course. <laughs> because it's not just an external thing. It's a heart thing. If it's only about not doing things, maybe I can do that. But But the catechism reminds us every thou shalt not implies a positive call. Here's the life you ought to live. We confess things done and left undone. And usually we can think of more examples of things done, but the things left undone might actually be the more devastating list. As Jesus makes clear, it's not just what we're doing or not doing externally. The law is given for several reasons, the tradition will teach us. First off, to reveal who God is. Everything that's happening in the law is divine self-revelation. I I think we miss that a lot. Um, We think of the law as we'll hear a bunch of rules. No, the law is revelation. The law is God showing us what kind of God he is, which we need to know and aren't gonna figure out on our own so much. Uh, which is why Deuteronomy is gonna talk about the law as a gift, right? What, what nation is there whose God is so near to us as our God? What, what other nation is there which has been given such great and wonderful laws? Right. Marduk doesn't give the Babylonians Ten Commandments when he shows up on a mountain and speaks one on one with somebody like that. That doesn't happen. But this God does. This God comes close to us. This God tells us what he's like and how to live in relationship with him. Okay, The rules are about relationship. This is how you be the kind of people with whom God can dwell and you don't die. Good to know. But the problem is we know the laws and we go on not being the kind of people with whom God can dwell and we not die. We keep violating them. The law reveals who God is. It reveals who we're meant to be, the kind of life we're created to live in God, but it also exposes our failure. And this again, finds its completion, its fulfillment in the cross. If you didn't think your sin was so bad, sit and look at a crucifix for a little while. As someone once said, if I'm okay and you're okay, why is Jesus on the cross? Something's not okay. If my sin needed that to take care of it, it's a lot worse than I thought. And the law reveals that. I can convince myself, I'm not so bad. I mean, yeah, okay, I could do better. Tim Keller offers the thought experiment of if you just had an invisible recording device tied around your neck, and at death, you were only judged based on the standards that you had set and held other people to over the course of your life, he's like, this is not going to end well for you. <laughs> but if we know what God's standards are, we know, we know. And we know we don't live up to it. The law is revealing to us the gap between the creatures we're made to be in, the kind of distorted, broken creatures we are. This is why when we go through the Ten Commandments in the liturgy, we respond to everyone, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law because they're not. Why when we have the summary of the law, we respond, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And so it points us back to God. It points us back to our need for God to do something that we're not successfully doing, that's not working out for us, which is question 337. Since you cannot keep God's commandments perfectly, what has Jesus done on your behalf? As the perfect human and the unblemished lamb, Jesus has offered himself to God, suffering death for my redemption upon the cross, which is the once-for-all sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world the law shows us we need God to do something that we can't successfully do for ourselves. The cross shows us just how bad our violation of that law is, how drastic the situation is, what severe a solution is required. But this is the mercy of God that in the same instant that he reveals that, he's also offering the solution. The very same work that shows how bad our sin is shows us a God who loves us enough to do what it takes to set it right, who's willing to die, who's willing to undergo that. And the liturgy hammers this home, right? This is the, this is the first paragraph of the Eucharistic prayer. By his one oblation of himself once offered, made a full, perfect, and sufficient Sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. It's like, how many words can we pile up to say, there's one sacrifice and it's enough? You don't need more than what Jesus has done. It's enough. It shows you how serious your sin, how deep your violation of the law goes, and it gives a sufficient answer. There's enough blood for that. The preciousness and the plenteousness of this blood, Julian of Norwich, is enough. It's more than enough. It's abundant. And there's not more that needs to be done than what Jesus has done. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus, in his perfect... Obedience unites human nature to himself, to God, and restores it and restores us. Right. This is the good news that is not separate from the bad news. They arrive at the same time. God is very merciful. So if Jesus has done all, it doesn't matter what I do, right? Well... Question 338. Does Christ's obedience excuse you from personal obedience? No. Obedience is always due to God as our Father, Lord, and Creator. Despite my sin and weakness, I should strive always to obey Him, looking to Jesus for salvation and to the Holy Spirit for strength. God deserves and rightly demands our obedience. Because he's God. We're his creatures. I don't know who you think made you. I don't know who you think you belong to. Classic parent move. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. Well, actually, God brought you into the world. He legitimately and rightly demands your obedience. You belong to him. He created you. He designed you. He fashioned you. He sustained you in existence moment by moment. You couldn't even disobey him if he didn't do that. But also, and this is really important, we're made for obedient love and service to God. This is the kind of creature that we are. We are God's creatures. And so disobedience is... A deformation, it's it's a failure to live a truly, fully human life. It's a failure to be the actual kinds of persons that we are. I I used to hear this a lot. Well, of course I'm never going to be perfect. I'm only human. I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Our problem is not that we're too human. Our problem is that we're not human enough. A lot of people have far too shallow an idea of what salvation is. A a lot of people have a distorted idea of what it means to be human. Jesus is the the only really successful human we've seen so far. (laughs) On some theologies, the Virgin Mary. We won't get into that. (laughs) But we're called to be full, whole human beings, which means not falling into sin. Sin distorts and damages our humanness. Disobedience and separation from God separates us from the fulfillment of our natures. Violating the law keeps us from being whole. My problem is not that I'm a human, it's that I aspire to be and I'm not quite there yet. I'm really bad at being human. And I need someone to help me be a whole human creature. It's a goal. And so we need a richer and fuller idea of what it means for us to be saved, to be restored, to be redeemed. These next four questions really bring that together. What is the first benefit of Christ's sacrifice? My sins are forgiven when I confess them and ask for pardon through Christ's shed blood. I live by being forgiven. I live by being forgiven. Well, the first benefit is forgiveness. It's reconciliation. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2. If you've ever had a a fractured relationship someone who's really important to you, that's extremely painful, right? It's agonizing. But our very existence is only through God. Paul says in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. So the catechism says, I live by being forgiven. I don't have life apart from this. I'm dwelling in death apart from this reconciliation, I need to be brought from death into life by the work of Christ's death and resurrection and entering into that through baptism, by faith in the power of God's grace. The problem is that some people stop here. I'm forgiven, yay! I mean, yeah, yay! That's a big deal, y'all. But it's not everything that salvation is. If salvation is healing, I need forgiveness, but I don't just need forgiveness. Question 340, are you still broken despite God's forgiveness? Yes. Sin leaves me wounded, lonely, afraid, divided, and in need of Christ's healing ministry. The word that we translate saved or salvation in the New Testament, sozo, it means healed. This, This is medical language. It means I was sick, I was dying, and now I'm not. Now I'm better. Now I can get up and walk out the door and breathe in the air and see the sun and, like, do things and not lie here shivering in agony on my deathbed. If I have a disease that causes my kidneys to shut down, I need dialysis so I don't die. I need some kind of external help to keep my body alive, okay? But I don't just want that. People can live on dialysis, getting it regularly for a long time, for many years, but that's not the ideal, full, healthy human life. I need the disease to be cured so I don't have it anymore. So it quits assaulting my body. And then I need my kidneys restored so they can do what they're made for. Only if that happens am I completely healed. Sin has consequences. This infection causes death in us. And that sickness goes deep. It penetrates every part of us. It ruins. It kills. The good news is that the God who loves us doesn't just leave us here. The good news is that the God who loves us doesn't just say, you're forgiven. I'm not holding that against you. He says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to set you right. I'm going to restore your humanity. Look, I'm joining it to myself. He doesn't just forgive, he makes new. We hear this collect in the Great Vigil at Easter, O oh God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. Grant us so to share in the divine life of Him who shared in our humanity, etc. He's restoring our humanity. And that means saving us from sin, not just from the consequences of sin, but from its power, from its infection, from its destruction, from death. 341, how does Jesus heal you? Through the gift and fruit of the Holy Spirit, Jesus mends my disordered soul from the effects of sin in my mind, will, and desire. Salvation is not just something that happens to us from the outside. Okay, if sin is something that is birthed and grows from the heart, then the heart itself has to be healed. It's got to happen from within us. The Holy Spirit is implanted in us as a gift. And so we're clear this is God's work, right? From beginning to end, this work of salvation is the work of God. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us brings forth this fruit, causes this new life to spring up, brings us from winter into spring, brings us from death into life. But one of our great medieval English spiritual writers, Walter Hilton, says, He formeth only by himself, but he reformeth us with us. The God who creates us, well, we're not really participants in that. But our new creation... makes us new with us. We become participants in this work of new creation because this is part of the grace and the goodness of God, that he invites us to be collaborators in our own salvation. We're given the power to obey. It's not in our own strength, but we really do obey. We really do change. Galatians is going to hammer on this, that we're saved from condemnation of the law through faith in God. But then Galatians is the book that's going to go on and list out these fruits of the Spirit, these transformations that happen in you that cause you to bring forth what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are produced in our lives when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, when we're abiding in that. And the saints tell us this. The further you get into the life of God, the more fully you come to know God. The closer you get to God, the more dependent you are on God's grace. This is not, as some of us in our uh, unredeemed ways would like to imagine, well, I I need God's grace to kind of straighten me out and set me whole, and then I can get it right, and then I can do it, and I can turn back and start relying on myself. That's not Christian sanctification. Christian sanctification is continual growth into deeper and fuller reliance on God, more fully abiding in love with God, and out of that relationship of love and abiding in reliance, bringing forth the fruit that he made us for doing the works that he's given us to do as it says in scripture as we quote in the post-communion prayer and it's holistic 342 what is this healing called this healing is called sanctification in it by the work of the holy spirit My mind, will, and desires are progressively transformed and conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. God is mending the disorder in our mind, our thoughts, our understanding, the way we engage with the world through logic, through reason, our intellectual capacities. It needs to be set right. He's doing that. Our imagination needs to be transformed. He's doing that. Our will, our intention, our purposes, these commitments that we make, the actions that we undertake, God's doing something in that. Our desires. Again, I think it's easy, especially in in certain kinds of Christian traditions or maybe if you're a certain personality type, Um, to see desires as the problem because they are so often disordered and distorted and say, oh, well, these, these desires need to be kind of smashed and crushed. Be really careful with that. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. God wants to redeem and transform our desires, not smash them, not obliterate them. Obliterating desire is not the way of God. You're going to need that. It's meant to draw you to him. Desire plays a really important role in the spiritual life, but it needs to be set right. It needs to be healed. Uh, It needs to be healed a lot more deeply and subtly than we probably realize. And so we have to keep bringing it to God and offering it to him. But this work of salvation and sanctification is getting at our desires too. That's a part of us that's being set right. And this is gradual. Those who are closest to God are not only most aware of their reliance on God's grace. The really, really holy people seem to be the ones who are most deeply aware of their sinfulness as well. One of the desert fathers is dying. Um, He's essentially on his deathbed. And he he starts praying and his disciples say, Abba, what, what were you praying for? And he's says, I was praying that I would be granted just a few more minutes for repentance. And they're like, what do you have to repent for? And then the, the narrative voice says, now all of them knew he was perfect. <laughs> it's like, what, what sins are you repenting of? But, but those who are really close to God see the ways that they don't measure up. Because they've been so healed, they're able to see more clearly than the rest of us. Right? They're less blind than we are because sin blinds us. You see reality more fully the more you're drawn to the life of God. And you see the ways that you still don't measure up to God's call. But you're also drawn deeper and deeper into this life, and that's where transformation is happening. Right? And other people can see it. What do you have to repent for? Right? They see the fruits of that transformation. There's um, a recently deceased Catholic essayist, Brian Doyle, who's up in uh, Washington State, I think. And in one of his essays, he quotes this letter from an 11-year-old Korean girl who read one of his books, and they started exchanging letters. And she says this thing that I think is just brilliant and wonderful, Um, 11-year-old Korean. Nobody cannot be saints. Nobody cannot be saints. This is what we're called to, the life of sanctification. And there's nobody who can't do that. Leon an early 20th century French writer, says at the end of one of his novels, the only tragedy is not to be a saint. Because sanctification being made holy is being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. It's being made the whole persons that we're created to be. The the only real human tragedy is not to enter into that transformation. Well, there are only three questions left. 343. What does the church offer you as helps for your sanctification? The church's teaching, sacraments, liturgies, seasons, ministry, oversight, and fellowship assist my growth in Christ and are channels of God's abundant care for my soul. Okay, if we're called to this life of transformation, how does it happen? Through the means of grace. (laughs) Right? Through the sacraments through the scriptures, not just reading, but meditating and memorizing and taking them into ourselves. And hearing God speak to us through through prayer, through the daily office, through worship. And the thing I want to point out here, all right, through these spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, self sacrifice, generosity, giving this is a corporate thing. Right? It's not just an individual thing. You you may have heard the the popular church critical saying, you know, that being in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're Christian. It's like that. Yeah, true. Um, but if you are a car and never get your oil changed, <laughs> that's not a good long-term strategy. If you never get if you never go to the gas station fill up on fuel, your car's going to die on the side of the road someplace. Okay, we don't have to reinvent all this stuff. You don't have to make up the life of sanctification. It's on offer, and it happens in the life of the church. It happens through a rule of life. We can talk more about that sometime if you like. Uh, There are these disciplines that are offered to us as ways of living out this life of sanctification, and we can enter into them. The joy set before us 344 for what does sanctification prepare you sanctification prepares me for the vision and glory of god in conformity to my lord jesus christ who has promised that the pure in heart shall see god if you remember in isaiah chapter 6 the prophet has this incredible transformative vision where He's, he's carried into the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne room. It says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, exalted, the, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. There were cherubims surrounding him. And Isaiah says, oh no, right? I can't be here. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, God of glory. And what happens? God sends an angel who takes a coal from the altar with tongs. And he touches Isaiah's lips and he says your sins are atoned for. He cleanses him. He makes him able to be in the very presence of God. This is what the life of sanctification is doing. It's preparing us to be in the presence of God, to behold his glory in its fullness and have it not destroy us but, but carry us into joy, to satisfy us. God is preparing us to have our hearts satisfied. This is what we're made for. To have our desires fulfilled. Hans Borsma has recently written a whole book about this. You can read that if you want more. But let's read the last question. With what attitude should I live a life of sanctification? God calls me to a life of joy. Constant thoughts of God's love for me and of my hope in Christ will keep me always rejoicing. I think it's so beautiful that the last word of this last question is rejoicing. Not even joy a noun, but but rejoicing this ongoing action. Because it's not just the joy that's set before us, but it's the joy that we begin to enter into now through hope, in love. As we obey God, we're drawn into love for God. And as we love God, we begin to behold him. And as we behold him, we participate in this joy. We should wrap up. There is catechesis next week. Um, There are several other topics that Father Lee wants to address, so We have some more weeks to go. You've gotten to the last question of the catechism, but not quite to the end of catechesis yet. But let's pray. Mighty God, let us not be satisfied with less than the full joy and transformation in life that you have made us for and that you have prepared for us. Draw us ever onward in obedience and love, in self-sacrifice, in thanksgiving, that we may not fall short of all that you have prepared for us, that we, that we may attain to all the good things that you have promised to those who love you in jesus name we pray